Good evening and welcome. I am Denise Chapman, and I'll be taking you inside Studio 54. Inside the book I co-authored with Mark Fleischman, and I'll be playing some great music for you, so stick around. We're going to have some fun. I'd like to begin by saying that this and every show I produce will be dedicated to three men that I adore and have the greatest respect for, Ian Schrager, Steve Rebell, and Mark Fleischman. Each of these men served a specific purpose in the history of the most famous nightclub on earth. Ian could be counted on to pay attention to the most minute details back then and to this day when creating and producing his take on fantasy and romance that we've all enjoyed so much. Steve could be counted on to be the charming director and lovable personality we all adored. And Mark Fleischman for having the balls to buy a disco in 1980 when everywhere you looked, bumper stickers and graffiti screamed out, Disco sucks. In 1980, everyone was advising Mark, do not buy studio Disco is dead. But Mark paid no attention to any of that. He was on a mission. Why would anyone go to such lengths as to impersonate a criminal attorney in order to bypass a security guard in order to enter a federal prison? Mark did. Mark would have done anything to get to Stephen Ian to cut the deal that would lock him in as the new owner of Studio 54. It all began in Fort Tryon Park, Manhattan, when Mark was just 10 years old. His parents enjoyed dancing at some of the most glamorous clubs of the day, like the Latin Quarter and the Stork Club. One night, they took Mark and his younger brother, Alan, to their favorite club, the Copacabana, in Manhattan on East 60th Street, just off Fifth Avenue. Mark was mesmerized. He took it all in, relishing every moment. It was wild and glamorous, featuring a crowd of well-dressed, attractive women, movers and shakers, celebrities, delicious food, and a 10-piece orchestra featuring the Copa Girls. The girls wore very tiny mink G-strings, sparkly sequins, fluffy feathers, and sky-high heels. Raquel Welsh and Joan Collins were once Copa girls. To 10-year-old Mark, the girls were practically naked, and the scene made an indelible impression on him. Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, and Jerry Lewis, Ella Fitzgerald, Sam Cooke, Harry Belafonte, they all performed at the Copa. Diana Ross and the Supremes made their debut at the club in 1965, paving the way for The Temptations and Marvin Gaye. There was also a crowded street-level bar upstairs populated by characters that seemed like they were straight out of Guys and Dolls and Goodfellas. The Copa was owned by Jules Padel, widely known to be connected to the Mafia. That night colored Mark's world forever. He once said to me, Denise, everything, and I mean everything that happened in my life from that night on, 
propelled me on a trajectory towards Studio 54. Fast forward to late 1980 when Mark realized his dream and became the owner of Studio 54. Months later, after a long battle with the State Liquor Authority, Mark reopened the club in September of 1981. That night, 10,000 people stormed the main entrance in a near riot, and the police were forced to close 54th Street to all traffic. Celebrities like Mary Tyler Moore and others were unintentionally turned away, while Ryan O'Neill, John Belushi, and Jack Nicholson, they managed to slip in through the back door. Studio was electrifying that night. DJs Preston Powell and Viviano were invited to hit the turntables after Steve Rebell heard them play in the Hamptons earlier that summer, and the one and only Robert De Silva worked the lights. The excitement of several thousand beautiful and outrageously dressed people dancing and moving in unison to the rhythm of the beat made Studio 54 once again the only place to be. Before the night was over, Mark greeted many of the regulars, including Andy Warhol, Calvin Klein, accompanied by a 16-year-old Brooke Shields, Cher, Liza Minnelli, Halston, Barry Diller, and his future wife, Diane von Furstenberg, David Geffen, and just about everyone else who made the night scene in New York, as well as Cary Grant, Lauren Hutton, Jack Nicholson, Ryan O'Neill, Farrah Fawcett, Gloria Vanderbilt, Paul Simon, John Belushi, and Gina Lola Brigida. At one point at the center of it all, Liza Minnelli and Cher were photographed dancing together, and that picture, it went global the next morning. The party, with all the visual and special effects masterfully controlled by Studio 54's tech crew, headed by Neil and Harold Wilson, included insane amounts of confetti, fake snow, and pounds and pounds of glitter shot from cannons into the crowd repeatedly throughout the evening until our 5 a.m. closing. At the end of it all, Mark was wiped out. When the house lights came on, Mark waded through a thick layer of confetti and made his way out the back door to his waiting limousine. He arrived home and collapsed. The first thing that went through Mark's mind when he woke up the next morning was, how the hell am I going to do this night after night? How do I maintain the same level of excitement and enthusiasm that I experienced last night? Yes, it was outrageous, and the people were dazzling, but every night? The second thing that went through Mark's mind was, I'm going to need a shitload of cocaine. I'm going to take you back to 1965 now, to when Mark and I met for the first time. We were introduced by Mark's father, Martin Fleischman, and my grandmother, Edna Koch, in hopes of making a match. Radio was dominated by the Beatles with their catchy hooks and beautiful melodies, but for Mark and I, uh-uh. It was all about the Rolling Stones. We never clicked romantically, but a musical bond was established on that day that lasted until Mark checked out and left this earth six months ago on July 12th of 2022. 
Some people believe that immediately after a person dies, the soul begins its upward ascent to heaven. The journey will take one year. So, in support of Mark's quest to keep moving up towards his final resting place on July 12, 2023, I've chosen to open this evening with the song Move On Up, a remake written by Curtis Mayfield. Track 2. I chose a classic by clarinetist Benny Goodman to honor the alto saxophonist Leon Zach Zachary and all the horn players in the in the house band of MFSB, also known as the South Soul Orchestra, who played on so many dance floor gold and platinum records produced for Philadelphia International at Sigma Sound Studios. This track is also dedicated to the swing kids of the 1930s and 40s. They created an energy born out of a love for dancing that would no longer tolerate segregation on the dance floors across America when the 1950s hit. Track three is dedicated to my friend David Mancuso, no longer with us, who owned and DJed at The Loft, a downtown underground club like no other that I've ever been to. Some club owners tried to imitate The Loft, but failed, never duplicating it. Shortly after this song was released, I got a call from David after he heard the song for the first time. David, like me, chose not to cut off the end of a record, and we agreed that the end on this song says it all. Track four is Mark's and my favorite take on a Stones classic, which I dedicate to Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, frequent guests at Studio 54 during Mark's time as the owner. So let's get to it and play some music. When I return, Tony Geo, DJ at Hollywood and the Copacabana, two clubs that Mark Fleischman enjoyed over the years, will join us. So here we go. Listen and enjoy.
been holding out so long I've been sleeping all along Lord, I miss you I've been hanging on the phone I've been sleeping all along I won't kiss you My guest this evening is Tony Geo. Tony was one of the five legendary DJs that opened Club Hollywood back in 1972. Tony then moved on to the world-famous Copacabana, where he played records for eight years and then musical director for seven. Tony, the reason I invited you to join us inside Studio 54 this evening is this. 
You and Mark Fleischman crossed paths several times over the years at various clubs you played at. Tell us about that. was at the Ginza, and I was introduced to him by Miss David Rodriguez. Okay. The one and only. The second time was at Hollywood. Mark came up to the booth to ask me about a record I played. And the record I was playing was a record by George Ben called Oba Vien El. It's a Portuguese dance record, which is absolutely beautiful. He said, what was the name? I told him. He said, I love it. That was it. The third time I met him was at the Copa. I was playing a record by The Temptations called I Need You. He ran to the booth and he said, who is it? I said, it's The Temptations. The song is I Need You and nobody's playing it. Overlooked by DJs, overlooked by radio. Yeah, that's a great record. No doubt about that. I like the edit that you did on I Need You. You extended it by more than two minutes. It's really good. Drums. I like the drum break. You turned Joey Madonia onto that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Why do you say it like that? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, he loved I mean, He's I crazy about that I, record. Listen, you ask me, I tell you. I turn everybody on. I don't care. If I have the record, you should have it. Songs are for everyone. Mm. No, songs are for everyone. They're not to be kept. Like those. Who was it that put the blank label? Oh, there was a, Dave, there, Didn't David do no, that? No, there was a lot of jerk offs that did. People that you would not think would do it would either scratch the name off or blacken it out because they didn't want anybody to know. Like, I mean, stupid stuff. Stupid kid stuff. I'm not so Yeah, I know. Sure it's I stupid kids. Oh, okay. Mm. You think that a, you're going to have a so, crowd for one record? No, 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 no. And why you let everybody know? Because when they get something, they give it to you. You hide it from them, you get nothing from them. That's a good point. Throw that in. Um, Mark was unusual, don't you think? For a club owner, he was, he was on the dance floor a lot. He really enjoyed dancing. There's very few owners I've ever seen that during the night of operation, they're on the dance floor dancing. Mark was one of them. There's even fewer that loved music as much as Mark did. And I'm not just talking about one type of music. Mark loved all types of music. That's so true, Tony. Mark was very, very involved in the music at studio. Very from the music, from the uh, the music events we produced, to the music played at studio, he never. But he would never have gone up to Leroy Washington and demanded anything. He didn't have to. They they clicked. Mark and Leroy just clicked. Um, and Mark would hand Leroy a playlist at around one one thirty in the morning. And Leroy would somehow manage to include them in his in the following, you know, three or four hours that he played. And it was a nice groove from like one o'clock on. The music changed. You know, during the night it was everything that was on the radio. It was basically pop radio. And then from one o'clock on, it was decidedly very R&B, very black. He loved James Brown, he, the Temptations. That that's just the way it was. So, yeah. So then, so it reminded me of Billy Smith. You know, when I was just listening to all this for Billy Smith to go on a TV morning show and claim that he was the musical director at Studio Fifty Four from 1977 to '84. Uh, I I was just I was speechless. 
you what? So, uh, so anyway, so uh, no, you know, Billy booked disco acts, and um, that was it. He didn't have an office at studio, or he wasn't on the payroll, or you know, he was just that's who Steve Rebell went to. It was it's Steve Rebell's the one really? Mark booked a few things through Billy, but not many, maybe like three or four during his time at Studio. The Weather Girls, a few others. But to say he was the musical director, Mm -hmm. you know what that does because you were the musical director uh, at at the Copacabana. You know what that entails. It entails work. Billy Smith, I've known him for a long time, is a bullshit artist. He lies about everything. But so do most people from that era that are still alive. They change history. Now I hear that Nikki said he worked at the round table. I used to go to the round table all the time. And the only person I ever saw play at the round table was Joey Parliamentary. How do I know that? Because the round table owners were the Hollywood owners. When they closed the round table, everybody from Roundtable went to Hollywood, especially the drag queens, John LaFleur et al. They all came to Hollywood. Now, Nikki, you said you worked there. I have very, very, very doubtful because nobody that owns a bar that serves liquor is going to hire a 14, 15, or 16-year-old kid to work there. They're not going to jeopardize their license. Change in history? You weren't the first one to play Love is the Message. Change in history, you weren't the first one to play Sultana by Titanic. I heard that at Sanctuary from Francis way before you even picked up a needle. Oh, by the way, are you sure you weren't the inventor of the needle? Because it seems that every first thing that happens, you're the man. You're not the oldest living dish jockey alive. I'm older than you. I started before you, and I'm still alive. And there's guys that played before me, that is still alive. So I think you better just calm your jet. It's funny you should say that. Um, you should say that about Nikki because it was like 20 years ago. I remember I was on the phone with Nikki one day and he said to me, you know, he was complaining. He was complaining to me that he was losing patience with people rewriting history. And that's really funny coming from Nikki. He, years ago, told me to my face, you know, I worked at studio one day and I got so fucked up, Steve fired me. Now, if that's the case, how the hell do you put up something that you're playing in Australia and you were one of the resident DJs of studio? Tell me what the hell that means. What does resident DJ mean? Wait a minute, he said he was a resident DJ at at studio? Yeah, he was one of the resident DJs at studio. Sort of like Robbie Leslie paying 9,000 days of 800 days. These people can't keep their mouths shut. I have the same stories at the Copa. Fat little Louis Marios telling somebody that he worked at the Copa in the 70s. Bullshit. I was the only one that opened that club and I'm the only one who hired the two disc jockeys that worked there with me, Danny Rodriguez and Carlos. Little Louis worked private parties at the new Copa on 57th Street for some gay guy. He worked four or five parties and he was gone. So if he's going to bullshit, do it to my face. 
Then there's a kid from Brooklyn who said, I hired him. Never hired him. Then there was a freaking, I don't know the kid's name. Bacho knows the kid. He tells me, oh, he said, you hired him. I didn't hire shit from Brooklyn. Then we get the the kid that just dropped dead that said, you know, the gangsters hired me. I mean, come on. Stop with your bullshit, man. You're dead. I wish I could tell you to your face. But all you guys that tell you that they worked at Copa, do it to my face. Tell me when I hired your asses because I never did and I'm tired of your bullshit. Go back. Go back. Repent. Repent, sinners. Oh, God. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Okay, so, yeah, no, I know. The one that gets me is the one about working Studio 54 more, more nights than any other DJ. Yeah, yeah, when the truth, yeah. Well, and this, I confirmed this with Michael Fesco, who produced Studio 54's Sunday Gay Night for years. And Michael would have been the one to hire DJs like Frankie Core, Robbie Leslie, and a few others. But, you know, um, this actually reminds me, I am so lucky to have worked with Michael Fesco. He really was, um, he was just a special human being and so creative. And he was just a very positive, positive soul that will always remind me of the the song um, Accentu- Accentuate the Positive. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to play, I'm, I'm going to go with that on my, on my next podcast. I'd like to read something um, uh, from page 119, Inside Studio 54. A tribute to Michael Fesco. Sunday night became Studio's Gay Night, hosted by the legendary Michael Fesco, and the club was always jam-packed with gorgeous gay boys. Celebrities, male and female, gay and straight, showed up unannounced, without fanfare, wearing jeans and T-shirts, preferring the Sunday night gay crowd and music that made you want to dance your tits off. Michael appeared on Broadway for 14 years in various productions, then turned to producing and brought Patti LaBelle to Broadway. He was the first to present tea dance at his club, the Ice Palace in Cherry Grove, and later at Flamingo, his club in Manhattan. He also created Black Party, inspired by New York's West Side Leather Bars. Michael orchestrated and managed every project he took on flawlessly, recently saying, Oh, darling, just give a queen a staple gun and some fabric, and the job gets done. Rest in peace, Michael. Rest in peace. You went to, this is interesting, be graduated from Brooklyn Prep, uh-huh. which means you're, you're a smart kid to get into that school. Well, it, it, I don't know if I'm smart or anything, but it means I was a kid. And that was in 1967, you graduated. Yeah, yeah. And then you went on to St. John's, John's University, yep. graduated there in 1971. 71, yep. Did you have fun? Did you like Did you like being at St. John's? It's a great school. Well, and did we have fun? Absolutely. Were you in a fraternity? Yes, I was in a fraternity. Okay. I was president of the fraternity, yes. Ooh. Ooh. Wait a minute, and, wait and, a and, second. And my, listen to me. And my ass would have shown the effects of being in a fraternity. What does that mean? I got my oh, ass. Oh, the paddle? Pa- oh, and, yeah, that's real. That's not... F- they really do that? <laughs> that's not... F- that wasn't they, just an animal house? No, 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 no. Hazing, no. hazing. And, and when you drop down, every time you go whacked, it's thank you, sir. I like, 
I'd like another. <laughs> oh God, did my ass hurt? What kind of what kind of fraternity was it? Like, I, okay, my fraternity. Yeah, there was seventy guys, sixty-eight Italians. <laughs> Were they Sicilian though? Uh, Eighty percent was Sicilian. Okay, one Irish guy. Mm-hmm. And one, why would an and Irish one, guy and one be, Jewish guy? Why would either of them want to be in an Italian? Fraternity. Because uh, we had the roughest fraternity on campus, first of all. What do you mean by and, roughest? Toughest, you mean? Yeah. Oh, so you're a bunch of tough guys. You were yeah. bullies, like beating the shit out of everybody, scaring <laughs> that, that them for their time. lunch money? <laughs> that, that happened at times. Okay. Yeah, you know, these things happen in school. Yeah. Okay, so. But so you, well, let me explain to you. The, the Jewish kid got in the year I pledged because they didn't have any Jews in, but they passed the law that they can have Jews, so. What do you mean? You mean the fraternity passed yeah, no the Jew, law yeah. because up until then they no were banned. Jews yeah, this so, is a strictly Catholic fraternity. Okay. So, now, oh, the okay, Irish okay. guy, why he was in, because he was a Marine, and the president before him was a Marine. And we had like eight or nine Marines in the fraternity. Oh, that's nice. And we, and we had one Air Force pilot during Vietnam that used to fly heroin from Vietnam to New York on his jet, and he made a goddamn fortune. That's all oh, that's I'm going to say. Let's talk about that story. No, no, we're not going to talk about he that story. He was the president of your fraternity? No, the Air Force guy was, not the, oh. the Marine who called, was flying the Who was flying the heroin in, Finn? The Air Force guy. Okay, well, all right. So that's a whole other interview. That's a, no, that's, that's a whole other. I can tell you stories. And remember, this happened, Vietnam was when I was in college. Yeah, that was a tough one. Well, it was tough for the guys that went there because when they came back, they really did get treated like they crap. They really did, by these, I know. By scumbag people. It's true. That film um, with Tom Cruise, Born on the Fourth of July, that's a rough film to watch because it really did well, happen. I mean, I saw that happen to friends of mine, okay. and it was just heartbreaking and brutal. Some money too. 
took you in Now all you got to offer me is a drink of gin Why don't you do right Like some other men do Get out of here and get me some money too Why don't you do right Like some other men do
I started off with Benny Goodman and his orchestra, featuring Peggy Lee. What an amazing talent. Peggy was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1999. My favorite Disney full-length animated film to this day is Lady and the Tramp. I still watch it on a VCR. And all my favorite songs in it were written and sung by Peggy Lee. When my children were very young, I sang them to sleep with La La Lou. Okay, moving along. Track two and three. Touch Me in the Morning by MFSB. Mighty Love by The Spinners. Two productions by Tom Bell, who just recently left us. God bless you, Tom. Okay, it's time to go back inside Studio 54 with Tony Geo. Okay, so before, before we talk about Market Studio, can, I just want to go back to Hollywood for a minute. You know, Hollywood is credited as being the club where most of the now legendary but then unknown DJs played 45s and albums, experimenting and fine-tuning a new craft whereby they extended and changed the structure of a record, making cuts, editing, and blending the records together to the delight of the people on the dance floor. The significance of what went down at Hollywood and the effect these very young DJs like yourself, who played there, had on the music industry and the future of dance music cannot be overstated. The five original DJs who played Hollywood and then moved on to New York's historical clubs of the disco era were Tony Geo to the Copacabana, the Copa's only resident DJ until 1982, Bobby DJ Gudadaro to Le Jardin and the Continental Baths, Tommy Savarese to the Ice Palace and 12 West, Joey Pomentary to Sound Machine, and Richie Kazar to Studio 54. But there were others that hung around there at the time, and I want to, I want to name them as well. Steve D'Aquisto, Michael Capella, they all hung out at Hollywood, fine-tuning their craft, sharing music and technical ideas with the DJs playing at Hollywood. Other regulars who moved on to the clubs of that time period were David Rodriguez to the Limelight in Greenwich Village, Tony Smith to Barefoot Boy, Xenon, John Jellybean Benitez to the Funhouse, Bobby Gordon to 12 West, and the recording studio The Hit Factory, Joey Madonia to Disco 2, The Garage, and now his very own DJ Heaven. Bacho Mangual to Revelations and Plato's Retreat. That's um, that's pretty significant stuff, really. Um, Galaxy Twenty One would be later. That would later become the new DJ hangout where they would learn from the now legendary, my friend DJ Walter Gibbons. Okay, I just had to put that out there because it's very important that people understand how significant Hollywood was. You guys, you truly were pioneers. Blows my mind how many great DJs played at Hollywood. 
And you had, what, seven nights that featured dance music? Yep. Okay, so tell me who played there and what their nights were and stuff. Well, there was five of us, five original disc jockeys at Hollywood. And the guy who hired us was Joey Palamentari. Joey hired Richie Kazar myself one day. Next day, he hired Bobby Goddaro. Bobby Goddaro introduced Joey to Tommy Savarese, and Tommy Savarese was hired. My days at Hollywood were Sunday afternoon tea dance and Monday night. Richie Kazar worked Sunday night and Tuesday night. Bobby Goddaro worked Wednesday night. Tommy Savarese worked Thursday night. And rounding off the weekend was Joey Palminteri working Friday and Saturday. And that was the lineup at Hollywood. Wow. The good thing about it was that there was five different guys with relatively five different types of music. Because we all had our own taste. We had the same hit records, but on the side we had different tastes. And it was really good because I can listen to Tommy play something I didn't know. I can listen to Bobby play something Tommy didn't know, and we would bounce music off each other, which I thought at that time was great because it it had a uh, a feeling of really brotherhood with this music because every minute of the day, somebody's saying, try this record, listen to this, do this, do this. And when you have guys that knew music, I mean, you kind of listen to what they had to say. Where were you before, um, before, where did you play before Hollywood? Oh, dumpy places in Queens bars with a record player for, for $10, $15 a night. It was ridiculous. But I liked playing music. I played music when I was a kid. I bought music when I was a kid, 45s at yeah, the local record shop. I, you were playing records when you were young. What was the first record you bought, Dees? Um, it was Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock. Most people that played music started when they were very young with their love of music. And most of the guys that I came up with, we did it out of love because we loved the music. There was no money involved except a skimpy little pay. And if you hit a certain number at the bar, you got a $25 raise at Hollywood. So, you know, you could walk out there with $100 in 1972, which was not a bad deal. For doing something that you really loved, it wasn't a bad deal. The good thing about having these five guys around was that they all came from, it was funny, they all came from different backgrounds, they all had different stories, but all their stories came to music. The good thing about these these gentlemen that I worked for and worked with was that they never told us what to play. Never did anybody ever come to that booth and say, play this record, don't play this record, do this or do that. We had total freedom of what we played. Unlike some guys at other clubs who were restricted and had to play certain music at certain times and play the same artists because that's what the owner liked. That did not happen to Hollywood. We were totally left alone for music, which was really good. And if anybody came to Hollywood and listened to the five of us play, they know one thing, we all played differently. I played differently than Richie Kazar did. Kazar played much different than Joey Palminteri. Palminteri played different than Bobby and Tommy. 
and our music selections at times of the evening were different. They were never, ever, ever the same. Always getting new music. We were always listening to new music because that was the job. The job was music. And our job was to entertain. We were the new band, the one-man bands. And our job was to keep the people dancing, get them to the bar, get them back dancing, get them back to the bar to make money for the establishment. Because you made more if you were, um, um, if the bar was good. Yeah, we got bonuses. They right. gave us like a $25 bonus if the bar hit 2000 or 3000 or some, some nonsensical number that I only hit maybe four or five times in the months that I was there. The only one that really hit it was Palmentary on the weekend because that was the biggest days. They thought the best day of the week, unbeknownst to me, was the day they gave me, Monday night. Now you'd ask, why Monday night? I asked the same question until I was told by a bartender, that's the day we're all off. Exactly. Mondays. Yeah. All these bartenders, all these drag queens, it didn't work Monday. There was only one club to go to. We were the only club open seven nights a week and seven days a week. They all came to Hollywood. At Hollywood, at the beginning, it was second all and two and all city. David Rodgery, every disc jock, Michael Capella would come in and shove two and alls and second alls down your mouth every day. It was hilarious. Everybody at Hollywood was stoned on downs. Everybody. Nobody did anything else but second alls and two and alls. That's what they did. But they would do him like four, five, six, seven. Oh my God. When we used to go to the Reese Park Beach, I mean, Rodriguez used to do like six two and alls. Oh my God. And then lay on the beach like a fat fucking whale. No. Remember no, there no, was no, the no, yellow, no, no. the red, and the blue yeah, and the red? No, no, yeah. no, they were too strong for you. No. But the Nembutals, that uh, was just listen, fun. Listen, two and alls were the way to oh go. My. Oh, four two and alls? Yeah, that, yeah, they were just shove them down your throat. Now, what happens? Well, wait oh. a minute. I want to ask you one question. So you didn't mix it up with blackbirds or anything no, for energy? David did that. I never I never liked Black Beauties, never liked them. Oh, they were called Black Beauties. They were called Black Beauties. Yeah. And David, see, I would have thought the opposite. No, I David liked you both. Did no, Black no, 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 no. And... David did Black Beauties and he did Second Alls and Two. At the all. same time? Yes. Oh, my. To go up, down. I mean, th th think about David Rodriguez. He was fucking sideways. He wasn't up or down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gotta, uh, <laughs> realistically, he was fucking nuts. Yeah. But he wasn't always high. He was. When he oh, he was high on life. He was high on life. No, no, yeah. I wasn't going to Well, he actually, he was just high on himself. He, he was just high on the humor of life. All right. He saw something funny in everything. Uh, I think he ridiculed everybody. He That's did, uh, he yeah, totally he, did. yeah, he did some funny things. He, he loved everybody. to ridicule. Yeah. But let me get back to the story. So one night I was playing. Because that's when everybody else was off. Remember, it's Monday. So all the DJs that were working good clubs, they worked the weekends, they were off. So everybody was, was basically at Hollywood on Mondays. I mean, everybody. Anybody who played music was there. Who comes walking in? Tommy Savarese and Bobby Goodadaro. <laughs> they come into the booth, hello, kisses, well, hugs. Were, yeah. Kisses, hugs, all that. Tommy looks at me, Bobby looks at me, and Bobby says, I want you to try something. I said, remember, he's a pharmacist. Oh, that's right. Bobby was a pharmacist. He takes this oh. he takes this round tablet out and he says, try this. I said, what's it going to do? He said, it's going to be great. Because, you know, Bobby was very quiet. I mean, he, I've ne I never saw him get angry. Ne 
Emma, I never saw him get angry. Everybody else I saw get angry. Richie, not angry, but like a little. Tommy always was pissed off. Joey, always pissed off. And I was always pissed off. So the three of us always argue. That was the first time I ever did a quaalude. Bobby had them. Remember, Bobby was a pharmacist. He got all the drugs first. And at that time, they didn't count narcotics. So when Bob would come in and drop off two and alls or drop off second alls or drop off quaaludes, they were all pharmaceutical and they came off the rack. And not many people knew that. But Bobby was the guy. Bobby was the guy who introduced me, David, Michael, Tommy, and golly knows who else to quaaludes. When I took over the Copa, it was basically a white club which did not, and I repeat, did not last that long. Lily White, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, Guido, and Guidettes, and Bronx. That's what it was. And it was that way for maybe eight or nine months, and then they disappeared because another club opened up. I was doing independent promotion and R&B promotion, so I had a lot of hooks with the radio stations, and the Copa was changed to a black club. Like, within three weeks, it became black, and we were, it was a black club for about a year and a half, and then that started dying out, and we flipped it to Spanish. The difference between the Copa and any other club I've ever worked at is that they made the transition. Most club owners don't make a transition. They stick with what they know, even if they go down and burn the ship. They stayed in what they were comfortable in. The Copa was the perfect location. Upper East Side, 60th Street and 5th Avenue, right across the street from the Plaza Hotel. The Latins loved it. Hispanics came from five boroughs, Westchester, New Jersey, even Pennsylvania to come to the Copa for Latin nights. Remember, it was the 80s, and coca, cocaine, was everywhere in New York. The Copa attracted a very upscale Latin crowd from all walks of life, including big-time major drug dealers. To avoid any problems, we enforced a policy of no dealing inside the club. I told dealers that I knew under no circumstances were you allowed to deal in the club. If you did, you get thrown out. You, your family, everybody gets thrown out, never to return. I couldn't stop them from getting high, but we did limit the amount of drugs that were dealt at the Copa. This worked because they enjoyed bringing their wives and girlfriends to the club. There was only one guy, and I'm going to mention it on my show, who asked me for permission to deal at the Copa. One guy. Who? I'm going to save that for my show. That's, <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, how no, would no. we know who a drug dealer is? Oh, no, no you'll, when I mention his name, oh, you're going to definitely know who this so guy is. So it was like somebody in the entertainment business then. Real famous. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. And I said, what the fuck? Are you crazy? Okay. You're going to blow shit up. <laughs> That's exactly what you're Blow shit up to. on WFU Radio. Okay, that's perfect for you. That is. That's the Say name it again. Blowing shit up on WFU Radio. Very good. Okay, so, Tony, I remember it was uh, in 1977, I remember receiving a beautiful black and gold poster, a poster-sized invitation in the mail to the opening of Studio 54. 
Stephen Ian, they remember they had several openings before the official grand opening. Yeah, they targeted the entertainment industry one night and the world of fashion on another and so on to get the word out about this fabulous new club in the wrong part of town. It was brilliant, actually, don't you think? Correct. And and there was more than one person who goes around saying he was the only person and the first person to work at studio. You mean to play. Yeah, guys who worked parties at studio before the official opening of studio. At the official opening, there was only one disc jockey in that club. And that was Richie Kaza. How do I know? Because he's my friend from Hollywood. That's how I know. And I visited him a few times at studio. And I got the impression from him that he wasn't going to be there too long because they broke his balls about music. And if anybody knows most disc jockeys, they want to be left alone when it comes to music. They don't want to be told when to play something, how to play something, because it breaks up the momentum. And that pissed Richie off enough, didn't want to stay at a studio. And he left. So I only went there to see him those four or five times, and I didn't go back until Mark bought the club. I went with David. I never waited online. If I didn't get into the front, I would go into the back because I knew the guys at the door, and I never had really any problems getting in. But this night, we went to the front door. Everybody said hello. We walked in. Me and David went right to the bar, and I said, David, you want something to drink? And before he said anything, I turned around, he turned around, we're looking on the dance floor, and who's dancing? Mark Fleischman. Says hello. And I said, Mark, listen to me. Whatever you got, do not offer it to me. He attempted to tell me to follow him to go into the back somewhere. I was not going to do that. So I said, Mark, no, I have to go. Me and David have an appointment. So he said, can I buy you a drink at least? He bought us a drink, and he went into the back. Now, I don't know if that's the rubber room, the hose room, the dude room. I don't know what the room is. But he left us, and I said goodbye. Me and David finished our drinks, and we walked out of Studio 54. Whenever DJ Leroy Washington played this track, and sometimes twice in one night, I knew Mark Fleischman was on the dance floor. Tail in the air. Straight catch, John. I'm a I'm a feeling Casanova. Hey, man. Get a shoe thrown at me from a mean old man. Get my dinner from a garbage can. Yeah, don't cross my path. 
and I got cat Me. 
miss me. I know you miss me. I know you miss me, blind. Poets often use many words. To say a simple thing It takes thought and time and rhyme To make a poem sing With music and words I've been playing For you I have written a song to be sure that you'll know what I'm saying I'll translate as I go along stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words
That was Stray Cat Strut by the Stray Cats, Miss Me Blind by Culture Club, and Fly Me to the Moon by Tony Bennett. This is Denise Chapman saying good night, boys and girls, and thank you for joining me inside Studio 54. Good night, Mark. <laughs>